0: This episode is brought to you by Snapple. Want to know another Snapple fact? The first hot air balloon passengers were a sheep, a duck, and a rooster. Ridiculous. Check out snapple.com to find ridiculously flavored Snapple near you.
1: Hello, this is the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast from Literary Hub, where we believe that every issue in your social media feed or on the evening news has already been tackled somewhere in literature. I'm Whitney Terrell, the author of the novel, The Good Lieutenant.
0: And I'm Vivi Ganeshanathan, also known as Sugi, author of the novel, Brotherless Night. Have you ever been to the White House? Have I ever been to the White House? I am from Maryland. Um, And so basically every time my family had out-of-town guests, which was all the time, when we went to D.C. for sightseeing, we were always going to the White House. It's like going to Applebee's for you? More or less
1: more okay.
0: or less Back, more backyard.
1: Less. i only jogged by it once when awp conference uh was in dc in 2017 that was the first time i ever first and only time i've ever been live next to the white house well what did you think it was kind of weird um it's i was smaller than i thought it would be uh and I, a little surreal and and i I was trying to figure out why it felt so weird to just stand there looking at it through the fence and it was because i'd seen it on tv so many times you know i the white house is probably like the single most popular setting in all of american literature and film if you think about it you know just tons of novels are set there tons of movies tv shows a billion political nonfiction books and biographies you know i mean it's just it's an end there's an endless white house oeuvre.
0: So, yeah, I mean, I guess that's I'm rewatching the West Wing right now. I've been to the real White House a lot, um, but the, I think the version in my head is probably still Judd Bartlett, actually, from that show.
1: And that's what we want to talk about today is like the White House as a symbol and setting in American fiction and how that symbol and setting has been changed in recent years by everything we learned about the Trump presidency and by the January 6th riots.
0: Yeah, how do norms um, get set up or subverted by what we put in the stories we make up about these institutions? How does Judd Bartlett or the president of any classic high stakes one guy out to save the world White House thriller withstand the image of a reality show TV star throwing ketchup against the walls at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue?
1: Exactly. And to discuss that, we're going to talk to thriller writer Matt Quirk. He's the New York Times bestselling author of Red Warning, Hour of the Assassin, The 500, The Directive, Cold Barrel Zero, Dead Man Switch, and The Night Agent, which is now a hit Netflix series. He spent five years at The Atlantic reporting on crime, private military contractors, terrorism prosecutions, and international gangs. He lives in San Diego. And his newest book, Inside Threat,
2: is out this
0: month. Welcome, Matt.
2: Thanks for having me. It's great to see you.
0: It's great to see you too. So um, in this episode, we want to examine the White House as a setting and as a trope over time in American film and literature. And like in The Night Agent, your your new novel, Inside Threat, is set partly uh, at the White House. A lot of your work is set in Washington, D.C., where you were a reporter long ago. We were reporters there together. And mm-hmm. I wonder if you could read a description you have of the White House and its ground from the very opening of the book.
1: We were going to have you read later, and then I realized it was going to be really hard to do without talking about plot. So I just decided that this would be that this would work.
2: Yeah, Um, let me. Inside Threat is a novel. Uh, The setup is what if the president to get away from a threat flees to this. Doomsday continuity of government bunker and they lock him in and then he finds himself sealed in with a threat And it starts at the White House and I will give you uh, some of the opening pages here Killer, traitor, hero The man strolling toward the White House would be called many names by the time this operation was over But among his accomplishments he went by the alias Marcus It was a nod to Marcus Brutus, the Roman assassin With his navy suit and crew cut, he looked like any other Washington bureaucrat, one of dozens on their rounds near Pennsylvania Avenue this evening, though his expression was a little brighter than most. He strolled through Lafayette Park, eyes on the portico of the White House residence, with its great black hanging lantern. A group of protesters shook signs, tyrant and killer in chief, and shouted slogans on the brick sidewalk, facing off with a row of Secret Service agents behind a steel barricade. One demonstrator stepped onto the barrier, and the agent shoved him back. The country was a tinderbox. All it needed was a spark. Marcus surveyed the new, 13-foot-tall, black perimeter fence and the grounds just beyond it, noting subtle variations in the grass, signs of pressure sensors beneath, and the well-hidden laser, microwave, and infrared motion detectors. Triggering any of them would bring out the black-clad emergency response team and the Belgian Malinois attack dogs. He slipped across Pennsylvania Avenue, turning slightly to stay just out of frame of a school group selfie, his eyes tracing the rooftops of the buildings surrounding the White House. He picked out the sniper team on the eastern edge of the residence roof, a spotter and a shooter with a silenced custom Remington 700. Glancing back to the office buildings towering to the northwest, he checked the parapet that concealed the Avenger system, a battery of eight Stinger missiles along with a computer-aimed machine gun firing six-inch-long bullets that could blow a plane out of the sky from a mile away. As he neared the main guardhouse to the north of the West Wing, his heart drummed harder. His skin was warm despite the autumn breeze. Marcus carried a Sig Sauer P229, two extra magazines, a surefire flashlight, and a bench made folding knife. It was all he needed to bring to this place down, to start a war. He waited for a staffer to clear security and stepped up to the guardhouse window. The sentry inside, Uniformed Secret Service stared at Marcus as he pressed a blue badge to a scanner near the gate. The guard's eyes went down. Marcus shifted his weight onto his right foot, his hands drawing closer to the sig on his waist. He knew what was on that guard's screen. Two words. Yankee White. It went beyond the normal security clearances. It was the highest access you could receive in the American government.
1: Thank you. <laughs> and as welcome. We sit-
2: we, I never read. Well, I never read, go. so that was, I, I, I'm not used to it. I, at the readings, I just do a little like book talk typically.
1: I know that's the new style, but.
0: Fiction, nonfiction ex- exclusive. Yeah.
1: I mean, as we've said, like the whole book is not set at the White House, just the beginning. Um, but you have written about the White House before. And, you know, I did a little like procrastinating writer Googling uh, on like White House films, just films. Right. And I came up with these titles. Right away, White House down. Olympus has fallen. Scandal, murder at sixteen hundred. Seven days in May. The West Wing, Commander in Chief, the American President, and Max Two, White House hero, which is about a security dog at the White House. Um, I think the passage that you just read helps answer this question in a way, and we can talk about it. But could you talk about why the White House is such a popular place to set stories? You know, why don't we have all these films and novels set at the Supreme Court or the Capitol building?
2: Well, it's just proximity to power, you know, and it's the most powerful person in the U.S. and arguably the world. So when you're writing a thriller, especially thrillers, and you want really high stakes, um, it's kind of a no-brainer that you would go there. And, um, you know, it's funny when you're when you're writing and reading about the White House a lot, and um, it starts to become kind of tropes and genre standards and things like that. And then it's always funny to go back and, and maybe just, I'm still kind of like the nerdy school trip to DC kind of kid. But like when I go to the White House and the first times I went into the White House complex, I was like in absolute awe. And, um, and I, I still get those vibes. And um, so that's, that's the thrill for people. And the thrill in these books is to kind of pull back the curtain And give people the sense that they're seeing into this forbidden world where the powerful decisions that affect nations and everyone's lives are made.
1: And not only that, I do think there's that and also the weird contrast with it being just a house, right? It's not like this massive, it's not like the Empire State Building or something. And it also has all these cool, as speaking for a writer, like all the things that you mentioned in that opening paragraph, like the sensors in the grass, the thing on the roof that shoots down planes, the, there's a pressure difference between the interior and exterior to expel chemical agents, you know, like all those weird, crazy stuff that's uh, stuck onto a normal person's house that a real person could imagine, you know, well, I don't know. Yeah, it's, 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 it's like
2: James fun. Bond stuff, you know. Yeah. And it's fun having worked in DC for a while because it's cool to get all that Neat, like cue from James Bond stuff. But um, what I try to do, which is always a balancing act in the books, is give people what they expect from a thriller like this, and then also take what I know of people who actually work at the White House and the mundaneness of it, and and to spice like splice that in without taking away from that um, you know frisson you get of it being this larger-than-life place. But I think, actually, when you show the characters there, not as, like, I don't know, sometimes West Wing... Well, West Wing did an amazing job on that. I shouldn't make that my example. But sometimes when they're sort of, like, wooden stock types, you just... It doesn't feel... It doesn't feel real at all. But if you have characters who who feel like real people in there I think it kind of heightens the sense that you're like really getting close to the power and can make it more powerful as a book
0: it seems to me like the thing that the White House has that the other buildings don't have which connects to what you're saying is that it's easier to bring in that element of the personal maybe than it might be if it were the Supreme Court or the Capitol building because you have the intimacy of like right the domestic sphere is like not that far away it's like physically it's like it's around the corner like First lady could walk in any time. She has a professional role. And also, like, you know, she she's part of the domestic sphere and she's part of the family. And so there's this porousness and this, like, sort of danger to the intimacy, which heightens the stakes, which you wouldn't maybe get in the same way. Like, at the Supreme Court, the secrecy is, like, I don't know, a sealed document. It's not the actual private life in the same way. Yeah. I don't know. What do you think? And, and, and the Supreme
2: Court, like, we don't have – we don't have – um like a matrix to kind of build off of like what happens there? You know, I know work people work there and I'm sure they're like getting into interesting work drama, but it's, yeah, it's what you're saying that it's a house. So you can do kind of and Abbey stuff and it's a workplace. So you can have people having kind of like real life workplace stuff. And it's also where you figure out which war you're going to start next and things like that. So, I mean, you can just run the gamut of, all the different levels of stakes and drama you want to get into, and it has secret tunnels. You can have affairs there, yeah. like
1: they do in Scandal. Yeah,
2: and but they, <laughs> you know, and they do have affairs, um, or in real, in the Bill Clinton's administration. Yeah, yeah, and and the Kennedy administration. My God, um, so you know, it's 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 got it all, and that's what I mean. The secret tunnels you mentioned, you know, those were for helping the president escape or helping the president get out to have, um, you know, presidential affairs.
1: I can't. I was trying to think of. I can't think of any other building that actually has its own genre, right? Kind of. I mean, there are like there are White House books, right? And those go through biographies and films and novels. And like it's it's there. Like the Empire State Building, like that appears in the King Kong movies. But that's it. You know, it's not like it keeps getting returned to generationally. I mean, I could even think of a of a Faulkner story that has. That, that's set in the White House. You know, and it's just it's just interesting to me that, it, that it's been so, and I think for all the reasons we've discussed. So, But given that there have been so many things written and said at the White House, what did you have to do to think about like, okay, what do I want to do differently? How do I make this story
2: new? Well, I mean, the White House, the short answer is I, I said it someplace else. So the White <laughs> House is just kind of like a warm up. And then what's fun about this book is, um, The whole thing is set in raven rock which is this cool real life place um which is it's a continuity of government like doomsday bunker and it's built under a mountain so you want to talk about like cool james bond style like natural naturally fascinating places this is it and you add to that all this power and stakes of having the president there and i mean the presidential bunker and kind of bunker scenes have been in a lot of fiction and film Um, and what was novel about this one was to actually deal with Raven Rock as it is. Um, and Sugi and I were talking about this before we started recording, but, uh, you know, our friend Garrett Graff, who just was a Pulitzer finalist, um, for his incredible Watergate book, he wrote a whole book on Raven Rock and it was amazing to have this, like, Raven Rock and the government's doomsday plans in general. So it was amazing to get this peek behind the bunker doors. And I had had this in my idea file forever. It was basically like Die Hard or Agatha Christie in a presidential bunker. You know, you lock them in, a body turns up and then you're, you're, you get into it. Um, And then suddenly Garrett's like, hey, I published a 600 page book or whatever it was on this. And I said, well, that'll be helpful, you know. Um, And so... What made it new was having it be the real place, and it's it's a fascinating place, and it's actually it actually ended up the, being the big challenge of this book. No one has any no like civilian reader, or even military reader, because very few people have been inside Raven Rock, has any intuitive understanding of how this place is set up because they like burrow tunnels through the mountain, and then they build office buildings inside the tunnels, and they look like Quonset huts. And they're on springs in case it all gets hit with a nuclear bomb so they can absorb it. And it was like fascinating to work all that stuff in. But the challenge of this book was orienting the reader in a totally new place. And I spent a lot of time and put like these maps in that I had to kind of render myself just to make sure it was all legible to them. So as a movie, I think it would have been easier because you can say, oh, that's what it looks like. And there was just a lot of work in making it very easy to orient and understand um, for the reader.
0: So um, for those of our listeners who might remember, so Garrett, Garrett has actually been on the show. Um, so for the, those of you who might want to go back and listen to that episode, I believe he and Susan Chay talked to us about henchmen. Could go back and look at that and also look up the nonfiction version of um, this Raven Rock story. So I really, I appreciated the, yeah, I appreciated the maps. Um, I will say for sort of the reason that you were describing, I was thinking about, you know, you were sort of like taking a very small portion of the White House and moving it to another place. So it's also like in a very classic, like kind of, like some of the tension is like watching these people who know each other and are supposed to follow a protocol, right? Like there's a protocol, there's a plan. And I don't know, like, I think I learned this from one of my students who had studied screenwriting, but like, when there's a plan, it's dramatically interesting when it goes wrong. Um, and so sure. like, I don't know, as a as a sort of reader of thrillers, like watching it, watching it and sort of waiting for like, what is the protocol? When will it go wrong? How will it go wrong? Um, was really fascinating. Kind of also just thinking about the White House, like, move to a different spot.
2: Yeah. And it's, I mean, it's a fascinating place because like, you're in basically a replica of like the white house or the um the main war room at the pentagon and then if you like step out here and go out here you're in an underground cave <laughs> and it looks like aliens and so you know you can work the action so that people are suddenly kind of like in the bowels of this thing and in kind of a classic um you know f- this kind of fish out of water situation and they're diving into streams because it has underground lakes. So it was just a fun, um, kind of like siege book for me to write. Okay. We're going to take a short break here and we'll be right back.
0: There is like sort of this, I mean, you've had a, you've had a long career as, as a thriller writer. This is your, I think, eighth book, and, I think um, so, which yeah. is amazing. And I'm, it's interesting to see the evolution of your work. And you started, of course, writing thrillers long before Donald Trump was president. And a lot of your work has been kind of set in D.C. and around the federal government. And um, Inside Threat and, and The Night Agent have this big difference from many of the other White House narratives Whitney listed earlier and a lot of those other stories were pre-Trump presidency. It used to be possible for me to imagine like dignified Harrison Ford in the White House or like Jud Bartlett and life in the White House being somehow more elevated and more serious than life anywhere else, but not anymore. Like that has been sort of the theater of it is different now. And I wonder how Trump's presidency has affected the way that you conceive of the White House and of your work. Well, it's
2: funny, you know, because especially for, you know, people on the left, like this might be too simple. But in some ways, um, the West Wing was just like during the George W. Bush era, it was like, oh, can we just pretend this guy who makes incredibly great progressive speeches and is like the dream casting president is the president? Because, you know, when George W. Bush was president, like people were like, oh, he has all these malapropisms and. He's bringing down the office, you know, and obviously it's a very different scale with, with Trump. Um, Bush at least was a true preppy. He belonged he, in. Like well, Bush but he was Bush like, like pretending to be so country fried, you know. <laughs> um, so, I mean, the thing it, it doesn't it maybe affects things in that people want to see a classic president. And there's something reassuring in having in fiction, um, what some people might be missing in real life, um, which is something I kind of leaned into in the night agent, but like, as far as me thinking about how to write these with regard to contemporary politics, what's, I, I don't, I don't worry about it too much. Um, but what's, what's challenging is I'm writing political thrillers for a incredibly diverse audience of political opinion. And a lot of people would be like, "Oh, okay. So, like, how do you do that? Because the country is very divided. People like think very differently. And it's actually it's kind of fascinating. Um, And there's a lot of themes of this kind of like tribal epistemology stuff in this book. Because what I've found is if you have like a corrupt president, say, people on the left and people on the right will assume it's their (laughs) the the president they don't like." And like people are so in their in their world that you can actually it's it's not as big of an issue as you would think as long as you stick to these kind of universal themes. and And that's the other thing that comes out from writing political thrillers in like a very politically divided time. I avoid like soapbox stuff. Um, and and when I come across it in like TV or film, I often it's, it just feels like the energy often goes out of the thing, you know? Um, So I try to avoid that. And it kind of pushes you toward more universal themes, which I like because it's a challenge. And there's something kind of like sweet in that I'm writing for a very politically diverse audience. And so I have to go back to these really universal ideas. And um, I think it makes the themes a little bit more timeless and makes me pay more attention to the themes um, because you know you get to like a really deep kind of like message about like doing the right thing or something and and there's something sweet about it in the idea that it's actually possible to involve people who would completely disagree politically in the same story about politics in the white house just because they're drawn in by these same characters so i have this kind of like very hallmark thing I talk about with these stories, which is like, it's a political thriller, the country's divided, but you can actually kind of bring people together in a surprising way because it's about the subject matter of politics if you um, kind of dig deep enough for for universal themes and make the characters involving enough.
0: It just makes me wonder, um, I am rewatching The West Wing right now and also um, I, with some in some frequency, like maybe every like four or five years, we watch the Pelican Brief, which has like a very specific, has oh, like a okay. very specific thing in it that's like, has aged surprisingly well. And I'm just sitting here wondering like, you know, someone reads Inside Threat 20 years from now, like your question of like, how can a political thriller be timeless? I just think is an interesting question. Um, Cause you know, you find resonance in places. Like when I watch the Pelican Brief or when I read it now, um, I find resonance in places that I that I never expected to. Um, and I'm not sure I think of those things actually as universal. I think of them as kind of left.
2: Oh, yeah. I mean, uh, well, Grisham, it, you know, it's it's big guy. But like, you know, it, it's really funny, because I'm when I'm not like, not in the text of a book, I'm a politics junkie. And I have a very specific point of view. And I think about it too much. But it's it's funny how few people are like that so i'll write about these themes like an inside threat there's kind of like a threat to take down the government violently you know and um and i've given it to people across the political spectrum and and they don't read it as like a commentary on certain recent events or anything um and i I wanted to be deliberate about that because i didn't want to be like this is a um you know, like one of those Law and Orders where it's like, oh, this is our uh, Jeffrey Epstein Law and Order episode, you know? Um, I wanted mm-hmm. it to be, to have some some staying power. So I think a lot of people, you know, they might have their political opinions, but when they come to a story like that, they they don't read as much into it, or they just, it kind of like comes in through their biases. So they just assume the bad guys are the people they think are bad and the good guys are the people they think are good. So it's, it's, it's like kind of a, a mirror to people. It's, it's really
0: interesting to me.
1: For me, it's like, I mean, reading the, your, the president in your novel Klein is uh, you describe him as like, he like sort of likes Eisenhower. He, and we don't know whether he's a good guy or a bad guy and we're not going to mm-hmm. say, um, you know, but he, he's an Eisenhower and Roosevelt. Are those his like predecessors? Yeah. I but mean, I think Teddy isn't okay. Yeah. But, so, you know, I mean, look, as a Democrat, I'd be fine with somebody who likes Eisenhower yeah, and yeah. Teddy Roosevelt. No, totally. Thank God. That would be great. Um, but, you know, I, what I'm saying is like it does. I still think, though, about like, you know, this guy is not the kind of guy who would throw ketchup against the wall, who would tweet about somebody's facelift, who would, you know, be, be up at three in the morning saying things on all caps on Twitter. I mean, like there's a kind of decorum to that kind of character. He's an ex-CIA guy, for instance, right? That is what we expect from presidents. You know, in in fiction and in real life, at mm-hmm. least for me. And like, it's interesting that there has been this that's why that there's such a norm violation in Trump's you know, presidency, imagining him like flushing documents down the toilet. I can't. President Klein would never have done that. But Nixon know? did,
2: you know. Well, that's true. You know, and that's like and, and so when you, you think about like the presidency after Trump or after all of the horrible things that have happened in the Oval Office, it's remarkably durable. Um Especially that's in true. Fiction. I guess
1: Johnson used to talk to his age while oh, he was taking the crap. Yeah, so yeah totally that. Yeah,
2: is that the, I think yeah the power <laughs> brokers over your shoulder. Yeah, and like um, So it, it's really remarkable to me kind of the durability of these images especially in fiction because um, You know when you sit down if if you had a character like Trump did it, it wouldn't be in your realistic gritty high-stakes thriller. And you know, I, I wrote a thing for vox where basically you can think that um, when Politics seems to have gone completely crazy and DC seems to have gone completely crazy sometimes people come to These thrillers because they they make sense and you know more generally sometimes people come to these stories because however you do it, you know, there's some injustice or some wrong and you know that there's going to be a resolution. Hopefully it's kind of a complex resolution so it doesn't just feel like some happy ending tacked on thing. But, you know, you come to the thriller because especially more of the, the kind of genre fiction thriller, because it, it has those satisfying, almost familiar things where, you know, good generally will come out and Evil will be punished or if it isn't at least the world will make sense in some way So I wrote a thing for Vox where I was basically arguing that, you know We can do that in fiction when when DC seems to have gone mad
1: Maybe it's a way of maintaining norms. Yeah. Yeah, or re re-representing norms or
2: escape you know escaping because like you know people are more noble than in real life because (laughs) There's there shows like Veep which unfortunately is incredibly realistic well, uh, Julia Louis
1: point Dreyfus point. says says she can't she, they stopped doing the show because it was too much yeah, like exactly. reality. They exactly. The satire. Exactly.
2: Anything. So, you know, when when you sit down and it'll be like, all right, I'm gonna read, I'm on a I'm on a business flight, I'm gonna read my my novel, and it's gonna be about these kind of like noble people, high stakes. You don't wanna see what people are actually like in DC because it's so can often be so seedy. Um so what I like to do is make sure i'm respectful of those what people are coming to these books for to escape and to feel that these are larger than life people and at the same time kind of interleave enough of the reality of the place and the people that it feels authentic and that's kind of the that's like the balance i work on when i'm doing the books
0: so um of course the main character of inside threat eric hill is a secret service agent who has been shot nobly, protecting the life of a previous president. And his story reminded me a little bit of the Secret Service agent Tim McCarthy, who famously threw his body between President Reagan and John Hinckley Jr. So This is like the selfless, nonpartisan image of the profession, arguably nonpartisan, but this image has taken a pretty serious hit in recent years. Like, for example, 2012, nine agents lose their jobs as the result of a prostitution scandal in Columbia. In 2013, three agents sent back to the U.S. after getting totally wasted in Amsterdam. 2015, um, or sorry, 2017, an off-duty agent assigned to Mike Pence suspended amid accusations of meeting a prostitute in a Maryland hotel. So like what gives, like how does this, like is the image of the Secret Service being revised in some way? Is the Secret Service in trouble as an institution? Like does this change how you go to this institution and start depicting fictional characters that belong to it?
2: i mean honestly i think for my purposes like of writing novels about the secret service for a a broad audience i don't think those headlines really change anyone's perception you know because i think people when they think about the secret service they think of like in the line of fire with glenn eastwood which is you know obviously like a fictional representation that becomes kind of the standard and i think they think like very nobly about the secret service and you know also like There's a lot of scandals in a lot of arenas, not to not to excuse anything like I was going to be like, well, I was like, is literary fiction in trouble because of, you know, these three fellows who have gotten (laughs) to Yeah, yeah. Uh, That's that's a long conversation. Um, And and so like for my purposes, no, because somebody picking this book up at Target is going to be like the Secret Service. They take bullets for the president. And.
0: Oh, what, no, what I was going to say, saying? well, then maybe let me phrase the question like a different way. Does it present you with any opportunities, narratively, that you didn't have before? Well, yeah, I mean, yeah. And
2: yeah. And, and the thing that was more relevant to me in the book is that the Secret Service, um, you know, their investigations, I don't know if there were lawsuits, it, it had a, a bad track record of not adequately pro- promoting agents of color. And there was a big Inspector General report and that came out. So I, you know, I sit down and when I write this book, I talk to my friend who's a Secret Service agent. And that's always so helpful with these things because, um, you know, for a variety of reasons. First off, like whenever you do a White House book, there's very often a corrupt Secret Service agent especially if it's like a White House Under Siege book or like President Under Siege, because just as a practical matter, that's the only way to get in there plausibly. And if you look at Air Force One, like there's nine corrupt Secret Service agents. Um, so when you sit down to be like, all right, got to write another thriller, White House Siege, all right, half the Secret Service is corrupt. That's great. And they're like meeting with people in alley. So that's, that's kind of like genre fiction standard mode. And then what I try to do is call my friend Chris and be like, Hey, you're in the secret service. You and your wife are both secret service agents and you have these nice kids in Virginia. And then like talk to him a little bit. And then you'll be like, Oh damn, this is going to be so much harder <laughs> because these are real people. And not only is there a popular perception that the secret service agents are um, these kind of like selfish, selfless stoic sacrificing people. Like they are, and the job is really hard and often dangerous. And also just like, they have crazy shifts. They're never home. Um, their home life is really rough. They miss birthdays and all this stuff. So it made me like really appreciate that these are real people and have the sacrifice. And when, so when I do this kind of thing where I, I, I have to set out on the table the genre standard and then try to get the real life thing, then it's harder, but I think more interesting because when I come back to a book like this and I'm like, all right, you have a corrupt secret service agent. Like, holy, like that is crazy. What would it take to actually get a secret service agent to like go against the president and the office of the president that he's sworn to protect? Cause half the time they hate the president, but they always have this like huge, um, respect for the office The same way soldiers might know that like the war they're in is BS, but they like respect the people around them and they take very seriously the fighting. And then it actually becomes like an interesting writing challenge of like, how can you actually plausibly motivate a secret service agent to go against the office he's sworn to protect and the oath he's sworn to protect? Well, what if he thinks that oath is like to a higher purpose and then you're like, well, what's it like inside his head as he's, Deciding to go against everything he's sworn to do, and maybe even face off against or kill other service, um, other secret service agents, and that really is like the, the most, that would be the ultimate betrayal for them. So then it becomes kind of interesting, you know, when you you start with the genre piece and then you try to think about like what would that look like in real life. Now that I've actually talked to these, I'm people.
0: realizing as you're talking that. I can think of multiple depictions of Secret Service agents, and I can't say that off the top of my head, I would have been able to say the number in Air Force One, but like, I mean, even right there are, yeah, but like there are, um, there are like teen romances where it's like the first, there are two of them, one with Katie Holmes and one with Mandy Moore, where it's like, I am the daughter of the president and I've fallen in love with my hot Secret Service agent, but he's hiding from me that he's a Secret Service agent. Sorry, (laughs) everyone, spoiler alert. That's what happens in these two movies. And then- and then also, <laughs> okay. like, I remember as a kid really loving, there was like a, there's a writer who I've mentioned on the show before, and Curtis Sittenfeld also loves this writer, Ellen Emerson White, who wrote three or, three or four books set at the White House, researched it obsessively. Maybe got kick, kicked out, actually. And, and there is a book where the daughter of the president gets kidnapped. And it's a really intense book that involves mm-hmm. a lot of research. And it involves a corrupt Secret Service agent. This is not a terrible spoiler because it's pretty early. And, like, it is, like, a, a moment where I was like,
1: and this book is like it's a million not, years old. It's Susie. not. Come that old.
0: On. I'm not that old. But, um, <laughs> but like it is this recurring trope. And I'm thinking about like as a reader, you know, of course, I'm like pulled along by the events. But yeah, how do I think about how do I think about motivation? Um, and like what is yeah, what is actually believable there? And, and like actually the one of the tropes is like, oh, it's so hot to be like guarded by the hot secret service agent. This is also like a YA trope.
2: Yeah. And I mean, like, so that's fine. And you know, it's like, (laughs) I I forget how it goes. But it's like, unicorns don't do that, man. (laughs) You know, like, that that kind of thing. Like, that's not how unicorns act. So if if you have like a steamy, horny teen YA, like, yes, you could the romance can come in there, even though that's kind of like, kind of gross. We've been referencing your
1: 2019 uh, novel, Night, the Night Agent at the beginning of the of the show, and which is the basis of the Netflix series of the same name, that debuted this March, become a massive hit, which I'm sure has been very satisfying. Got renewed for a second season. I understand the showrunner Sean Ryan combined an idea he'd been working on about the Secret Service with your main storyline. Speaking of the Secret Service, can you talk about that experience of working with him and and seeing your book adapted for television and the you know a White House of your sort of imagination put on screen
2: it was uh extremely cool uh (laughs) and you know there's like a i I, it might be the predominant vibe when you're being adapted people like other authors to be like oh hollywood's got the thing huh how's that going you know and the idea being like you're going to be treated terribly and they're gonna make a terrible movie or book or show and and the whole thing was amazing And I think maybe even more amazing because there's a sense that like you need to be protective because they mess stuff up. Um, But no, it's incredible. Like Sean was super gracious and sent me the pilot to make sure like I liked what he had done, which was crazy to me because I was a huge fan of his work before. And it was really cool the way half or big chunks of the story were new to him. Um, Principally just because he was really excited about that. And then it was like these two things clicked together. And he went and wrote the pilot on spec, which he doesn't even need to do. And he was just like really excited about the project. And he kind of got the whole thing, a huge amount of momentum. And he was super, super nice to me and super respectful of the book and everything and reached out And it was great that I was a big fan of his going in because I had so much trust. And obviously when I see somebody like changing stuff, I don't know if you're like this, when you get any kind of notes, you're like, well, that's perfect the way it is, you know, because I spent so much time in it, you know? So there's a little bit of that, but I just trusted him so much that I said, well, let's see. And then I realized the show was also going to be partly brand new, even to me. And, It was incredibly thrilling to see scenes from the book that I had come up with then rendered in the screenplay and then acted out on screen. I mean, that's like one of the thrills of my life. But then it was also cool at the end of the pilot and then watching the show to suddenly be like, who are these people? What's their angle? (laughs) Because it was like a whole new twist. So it was fun. And I don't know, maybe I would have been more persnickety if it was like a straight adaptation instead of like, this whole new thing. And basically I just said, I'm happy to help. And if helping means like staying out of your way, that's cool too. And so we talked about kind of top level character motivation stuff. And he, you know, in some interviews later, I saw that he actually used that for the characters, which was really cool to see. And, but the day-to-day writing and everything they just ran with. And then I got to visit the set, which was just fun as like a tourist geek kind of thing and yeah so the whole thing was like a dream and then the show turned into a massive hit and that was completely shocking because it's just it's like winning the lottery just to get something made i never expected that to happen so for it to do well um the whole thing has been
0: kind of it's surreal. really 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 fun to watch um and it is yeah like the, the show, show and or... and also yeah I, yeah I relatively recently taught a class that is sort of sort of about what you're talking about like trying to think about it was like plot as a revision and I ended up using a lot of screen adaptations because screenwriters are so merciless about like if it is dull um even if it is in your book or even if it just doesn't work for what they're envisioning or it doesn't work on screen they'll just they'll change it and um so it provides all this great material for kind of like you know which which version of this which version of this plot would you would you be more interested in I was will also add for DC um DC Native is me, you know, if you watch The Night Agent and you see this version of DC on screen, and I you know, I was reading about it and it's it's shot in Vancouver and that is a really good fake DC. Um it's really it's really effective.
2: They built a metro train I, to blow it up. I,
0: I was like, that is a yeah, I mean, I would not have known um without looking it up. So DC, real and fictional um, so, so much so much dramatic material ahead of us um, and so for those of you who have not seen The Night Agent, which is apparently a very small portion of you, <laughs> according to Netflix, but if you are one of the very few people who have not seen The Night Agent go and, go and check it out it's, it's really awesome and it's an interesting comparison with the book, which is also terrific and of course, Inside Threat is out in June, out now um, Matt, thank you so much for joining us we really appreciate it
2: yeah, it was great to catch up and great to meet you, Whitney. Nice to meet
1: you. That's it for the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast. This podcast is produced by Ann Kniggendorf. Our theme music is composed by Travis Workman. You can subscribe to us by typing fiction/slash/non/slash/fiction into the search bar of your favorite podcast app. Please go give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts if you haven't done it yet. You can also listen, find previous episodes, and read excerpts from our interviews at the Literary Hub website, lithub.com, where the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast page is listed under the Lit Hub Radio tab. We'll also post that show page with links to the books we referenced this week on Facebook at FNF Pod, on Twitter at FNF Talk, on Instagram at fiction.non.fiction.podcast. You can find video of our interviews at our own Fiction Nonfiction Podcast YouTube channel and IGTV channel, and on our website at fnfpodcast.net, where our back episodes are grouped by topic areas. Happy reading!